Welcome back. And we have just done a talk on looking at Muhammad and his wives, how he interacted with um, the women that he had either conquered or captured or other women that he had become part of his family. What we're going to do now is we're just going to step back a few decades before that. We're going to look at the dawn of Islam or the time just before the dawn of Islam. Uh, we're going to begin by looking at that and then branch off into other topics. And this is an important study. It's an important area to investigate. The reason for that is when you look at the time of what Muslims call ignorance, the time before Islam, they look at that time of ignorance and they see that time of ignorance as how they contrast everything that they believe about Islam. So the time of ignorance was this terrible, terrible time. And then you compare it to when Islam came and then you had the golden period of Islam. So you have Jahiliya and you had the Rashidun, Jahiliya, the time of ignorance, the time of the pagans, the time of where there's such corruption, there was abuse of women and children and so on. And then you had the Rashidun where you have Muhammad and then you had the four uh, rightly guided caliphs after him, um, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali. And so they looked, Sunni Muslims looked to these four rightly guided caliphs as the time where they want to uh, bring people back to that kind of time, uh, where that was Islam at its perfection, when Islam was at its highest. And that's how Sunni Muslims want to bring us back to their time. For your Shia Muslims, they want to bring us back to the time of, well, they say it's Muhammad and then just jump straight to Ali. They don't include the other caliphs that the Sunni Muslims include. So the leaders recognized by Shia Muslims, Muhammad to Ali because he's part of the family. Family, and then by Sunni Muslims, Muhammad, and then the next four um, leaders of Islam. So it's just a bit of a difference there. But it's, it's the golden era of Islam. It's when they felt that Islam had grown, Muhammad had come, the Quran had been given, and then Islam spread out from there. That's according to Muslim tradition, not according to history. History is telling us a very different scenario. That's not a talk for this um, series of lectures, but history is showing that everything we know from the traditions of Islam actually may not have happened. In fact, everything I told you um, in the session, last session that I just taught you, we don't actually know if any of that happened. We don't know if any of these stories of Muhammad and his wives, Muhammad going in and conquering lands, um, of, of the view of Allah and, and, and the ideas of the Quran and the book itself, we don't actually believe now that Muhammad had anything to do uh, with the stories of Islam. We're now even questioning whether Muhammad is actually the real founder of Islam as we know it today. That's another uh, topic for another day. But, but, it, but the whole stories that we are looking at we are going we are looking at them as the Muslims would look at them so I am presenting to you material that Muslims have to go to to know to be able to recreate their history it is questioned by the historians that's another subject but we are just looking at Muslim material the hadith the, the, the biography the Quran and so on and just taking it at face value as the Muslim would need to take at face value now, some of the stories I've been telling you, you'll have Muslims respond by saying, well, we don't accept that book or we don't accept the hadith. We don't accept that tradition. How do you know that this tradition is reliable? Maybe the tradition and the, the story, the oral tradition, doesn't actually go back to Muhammad, which is important in Islamic uh, way of understanding their history. So that's a way that you might find a Muslim friend will weave out of the difficulties you might present to them. 
Nevertheless, I, I referred to this um, when I uh, first introduced this material at a place called Speaker's Corner. That's down in central London. Speaker's Corner is the place of open air uh, preaching. And actually, Muslims love to go to Speaker's Corner. It is their place of open air preaching. And we as Christians go down to where they are, down in the heart of London, because we want to engage not only the Muslim missionary mind, but just the many hundreds of Muslims that come through that are just intrigued and seeking and just interested in in religious discussion and religious dialogue. So we go down there and one time, pretend this is the biography of Muhammad, and I held up the biography and I said, this is Muhammad's sirah. This is the biography of Muhammad. And then I opened it up and I began to read the stories of Safiya. I read the stories of how he killed um, Asma, the poetess, his, his enemy, and how he put a, a sword through her chest, or not him, but one of his companions did, and he affirmed that action when she was murdered by one of his companions. And I just read from the biography. I was just reading right there in the public square, and I was surrounded by many, many Muslims, and they were angry and they were full of rage. Be- but, and when they got angry, I said to them, my Muslim brothers and sisters, why are you getting angry? This is your book. This is not me. Don't get angry at me. Get angry at your own book. Get angry at the biography of Muhammad. Get angry at whoever wrote this. If this is true, what kind of man do you follow? And if it's not true, then it's just a lie. So don't get angry at me. Get angry at this book. And actually, we ended up having some amazing conversations because I was exposing what this religion really teaches um, from its own texts. You just let the texts speak for themselves. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go look at another apologetic that Muslims make um, for, for, their, uh, for the wonders of Islam and what is done for the world, especially for men and women. So I've just explained we had Jahiliya, we had Rashidun. And what you uh, have for many, many years is that um, these claims that Muslims will make that people don't question and they must question, these claims about the ennoblement of women, Khadija, the first wife of Muhammad, where she's revered and seen as that, uh, the, the epitome of a Muslim woman, and we've already asked critical questions of that, that she actually represents the pre-Islamic woman, not the Muslim woman, Aisha, and so on. And you just have to start asking uh, questions of your Muslim friends. Now, there's a big tug of war in the opinions of what actually happened in that time of ignorance. In this tug of war, you have, first of all, a very traditional, very romanticized view um, of, of what happened, as I have explained already. It was terrible, and then Muhammad made it good. Um, they claim, Muslims will claim that life was intolerable for most women. Um, it says the dawn of Islam benefited women, and then women were finally given rights. So women finally had justice, finally were given rights. However, the historical view is saying a different, uh, is showing a different story. So you had the Muslim romanticized apologetic that many people fall for, including Western converts to Islam and other um, converts out in other countries. And then you have the historical story, the real story. What happened back then in the 7th century? And what you find is a very different picture. You find that the pre-Islamic woman, according to, there's not much sources, but the sources we do have available, that they had a lot more autonomy. There was a lot more freedom for the woman. The woman could move about freely. Um, There was female goddesses that were being worshipped. Now, I'm not uh, affirming the worship of female goddesses, but I'm just saying that there was this idea that women could be revered almost to a god-type status. And they had much more diverse and freer lives um, than the Muslim apologists 
want us to believe. Let me just do a quick comparison between what the um, Muslim apologists say happened um, and, uh, and w- what we're going to do is we're going to do a comparison between the time of ignorance, the real time of ignorance, the real time of what history says happened, and then compare it to what um, really happened with Muslims. So we're going to set aside that romanticized claim that Muslims make, and we're now going to do a comparison between Jahiliya, the real Jahiliya, the real time before Islam, and the real time of Islam. Not what the romanticized stories say, but the real stories. So first of all, we, we know one of the best ways to do this is uh, to break it down to Khadija versus Aisha. So Khadija is your pre-Islamic woman. Aisha is your post-Islamic woman. So Khadija, Aisha. So with Khadija, with Khadija, we know that there was no enforced veiling. We know that the women had a lot more freedoms. With Aisha, we know that forced veiling came into play. There is a story in one of the hadith that seems to imply that, uh, that it was with Zainab, I believe, where the, some of the veiling came into play. And they, the, what, there's a story where the women would watch Muhammad take on a wife. And then if she had a veil on, then she was a wife. If she didn't have a veil on, then she was a, sa- a slave. She was a concubine. So um, the, the whole idea of veiling or at least of, of putting a barrier between a, a man and a woman um, became into play um, after Islam uh, uh, or Mah- according to the Islamic tradition, Muhammad uh, brought in Islam. We know that in pre-Islam, women were leaders. Khadija, Khadija is pre-Islamic. She was a leader. There would have been others. Was it just the elite? Maybe it was. But under Islam, not even the women of the elite had the freedoms that Khadija had. So we know there's a lot more freedoms and the women were leaders. That's not the case with Aisha. She had privileges because she was the favorite wife. So Aisha actually is a special Islamic woman. She doesn't even represent the true Islamic woman, which the other women became. Because Aisha was, was respected and was loved more than any of the other wives. Uh, we know that in pre-Islam, um, you have Khadija. She was a businesswoman. Well, with Aisha and the others, they were not businesswomen. But just to be careful, Muslims will always turn to Aisha and say that many of the sayings of Muhammad, the oral tradition of Muhammad's sayings that's been passed on for generation to generation, according to Muslim theologians, they will say that Aisha is the one who, who, who uh, 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 was the, the source of many of these traditions. There's not much evidence for it. And I have actually read some of those traditions. I sometimes open those, up, those traditions up. And then I just start reading it to my Muslim friend. And I say, well, Aisha might be the one who, who kept this tradition going, the one who said Muhammad said this. But that's a really seriously uh, uh, horrific uh, tradition for a woman. It's not always helpful for women. So even if Aisha was passing on um, sayings of Muhammad, it often does not help women in what she was actually saying. So always just go back and check every claim a Muslim makes. We know that in pre-Islam, there's polyandry. Polyandry is um, where a woman can take on one more than one husband. Now, I'm not saying that's what we all want to do. All I'm saying is that a woman had freedom to take on more than one husband. Um, it wasn't just the men who were allowed to take on uh, for more than one wife. And so um, that was definitely brought into play where women only could have one husband, men could have up to four. Now, one of the apologetics that many of my dear Muslim friends have said to me in the past, they'll say, well, Betty, when men go off to war, uh, they, lots of them die. So you need to have it because so, a woman needs to get married. That's the most important thing. And so when they go off to war and the men die, there's not as many men around. And so as a result, um, you need, uh, a man needs to be able to take on more than one wife to make sure that all women have a, have a husband. 
Then they say to me, uh, or very recently a Muslim missionary said this to me, don't you women all want to get married? I ha we happen to have quite a lot of single girls on our team in London who were debating the Muslim missionaries. And they say, well, don't you women want to get married? Uh, don't you want to be loved? And we all look at each other. We say, well, uh, if God gives us a husband, good, good. That's very nice. That's a gift. But actually, we've also got a gift by not having a husband. Both ways is a gift in Christianity. But then I said to this, I said, we might want to be loved by a man, but hang on a minute. We definitely don't want to be loved by a man who's loving three other women at the same time. And so you help them work that through that as a Christian woman, that's not appealing to us at all. We just not even don't even want a man that would be looking at three other women at the same time. So help Muslims to see how the, the, the way a man and woman is to be married in Christianity is valuable compared to how it is in Islam. But before Islam, women could take on more husbands if they so wanted. Well, in in pre-Islam, a woman, when she divorced a man, she would keep the children. In post-Islam, um, uh, or after Islam came, then when a woman divorced, she had to lose her children. And her children goes, goes to the husband under Islamic law. Uh, when a man married a woman in pre-Islam, he would move into her family. He would cleave to her. When in Islam, when, uh, when a man or woman gets married, then uh, she has to leave everything and she has to go to the husband. She has to go into his home and cleave to not only him, cleave to his family. Now, many uh, Muslim modernists will actually recognize that this is a very dangerous thing in Islamic culture. Uh, you might have heard the saying that paradise lies at the feet of mothers. This is a saying that Muslim apologists use all over the Muslim world. Paradise lies at the feet of mothers. Look how we revere the mother. And some uh, uh, modernists, Muslim modernists, for example, Fatima Munisi from Morocco, she will say this has actually caused havoc across the Muslim world. Because what happens is you have these boys, these Muslim boys, who are so closely tied um, to the mother. They're, they're, the relationship, the closest relationship in a Muslim home is often the mother and son, not the husband and wife. It's the mother and son. And the reason for this is if the mother has no love, real love from the husband, if the husband can take on other women, as the Quran says he can, and if the, the, the woman has to abide by whatever the husband says, if you take the Quran, seriously the way she gets her love is from her son and so that bond between the man the the, 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 the son and the mother is so tight that it's very very difficult um, for a new wife when the son marries a new wife he brings the wife into the home and it causes agony among the families or in the Islamic world and this is a pastoral situation you may well come across that you will need to deal with teach them what the Bible says Genesis is so clear he says a man must leave the family cleave to the wife. It's you and I just take it for granted. We don't even think twice about that verse. It is p powerful, that verse. That verse would protect millions of Muslims if they were to apply it. But instead, unfortunately, they go with this idea, with this tradition in the Quran. We know that women in pre-Islam had freedom to move. They had freedom to walk out when they wanted to. But as we see with Muhammad's wives, they didn't really have the freedom. It doesn't Surah 33 say that the best place for his wives are in the home. That's the best place for them. So we begin to see the freedoms of women begin to become more and more, more limited. We know there were goddesses in pre-Islam. And uh, again, this is interesting. Just a little side note. Uh, we now are, are investigating the team back in London, some of our 
our scholars back in London are investigating um, uh, the, the Nabataean origins of Islam. It looks like Islam probably came out of um, more, looks like it came out of Jordan, Petra, rather than Mecca. This is an ongoing investigation. But some of the guards of Jordan, Petra, the Nabataean people, the Nabataean kingdom, um, had a god called Allah who had a wife called Allat and a daughter or possibly a daughter or another wife, Manat, which, by the way, I mentioned in the Quran. And um, Allah and Mrs. Allah, if you like, Allat. And we know that there were these goddesses, Mrs. Allah, <laughs> these goddesses in the Nabataean kingdom, uh, which may be the origin of Islam, we never know, or the origin of the Islamic god. But we, there were these goddesses. Again, I'm not saying to worship goddesses is right. It is not correct, biblically speaking. All I'm saying is that women were sometimes put on a much um, better pedestal, if you like, than they were in Islam. Women had control over their property. If someone died, they had more control and they would receive a bit more property. They could uh, lend money even to their husbands. And they had the same rights as male heirs. That's at least where some of the, the pre-Islamic material is pointing towards. Um, and, but within Islam, uh, a woman didn't have as much freedom. She also, she wanted to divorce. And I, again, I'm not being an advocate of divorce. I'm just saying that if a woman wanted to divorce, she had to go, in Islam, she now has to go through arbitration. The man just says, talak, on three separate occasions. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Talak, on three separate occasions, and he is divorced. A woman has to go through arbitration. She has to go to all male panels and try get a divorce from uh, the male panels um, up the, the panel of men up there, but often um, she is sent back into the home uh, and often sent back into um, very, very cruel and very, very dangerous situations. At least this is happening in the Islamic law courts that function in the United Kingdom. And then, of course, we see um, in Persian literature, there's this concept of female warriors. And the, and the women were, were, were um, going to war alongside their men. They were strong. They were powerful. It's a very um, Persian idea. And a lot of Islam comes out of Persia. Um, but when Islam came to play, women were taken as captives. Women were enslaved. Half of Muhammad's wives would have been slaves if they hadn't converted. And they were, um, they were taken as loot and as booty. Now, a Muslim may respond and say, well, actually, um, you'll, you'll see Aisha leading the men into battle. That's a, that's a real twisting of what the story shows. Aisha was in battle, as were all the men. The women would follow their men into battle. But the idea that Aisha led them into battle is really pushing what the texts of Islam actually say. So there's all these internal debates in Islam. Remember the, one of the very first sessions we talked about internal debates. Well, that carries on into this whole concept of Jahiliya versus the Rashidun. So you have pre-Islam and then you have Islam. So um, a few, uh, so you have the debate within Islam where some say it was a terrible situation and others admit yeah, it wasn't quite so bad as many Muslim jurists like to make out. Uh, you'll have uh, others who will say that whilst um, it, it, it wasn't as bad, it certainly is not as good as today. And again, um, they, they're, they've got a confused picture really of, um, of what happened in pre-Islam. 
So then we have different opinions from Muslims. So you have some Muslims who say women were enslaved before Islam, but um, then they ignore the wealth of Islamic material that show that the Muslim women were enslaved in Islam. They say it all happened before Islam, but it didn't happen after Islam. And yet to, to come up with that claim, you would have to reject most of your history. You would have to reject most of your, your traditions and the biography of Muhammad, which, by the way, they do. I remember reading a thesis by a Muslim, a, a very progressive Muslim. And it was a compilation put together by some Muslim men and some Muslim women. And it was fascinating read because they were saying the way they were trying to throw out some of the, the hadith, some of the some of the stories um, that that most Muslims actually accept and follow was to find some story in, in the wealth of material and there's vast volumes of material you have to work through to get a full picture of what Islam teaches, which is what makes it so complicated. Um, as they, they were what they would do is they were taking these stories and they were finding one thing that would discredit someone who um, had started the oral tradition. So you have the concept where Muhammad said to someone who said to someone else who said to someone else, and that's the, that's the link of oral tradition. And um, what they would try to do is they find the origin, the source, the person who said they received an idea from Muhammad, they would, they would try to discredit that person. And that's the way that they would try to get out of it. But they really were going against hundreds of th- over a thousand years of tradition of Islamic, Islamic uh, uh, theologians and so on. It's very difficult for these modern Muslims to, to deal with their material. They literally have to throw it out. They have to say no, like Amina Wadud did, did, to some of the Quranic verses. Uh, there's also something else you need to be a little bit aware of when you're dealing with the whole area of, of women and what happened before Islam and after Islam. So here's one little quote I'm going to read to you and just think this quote through. With the advent of Islam, the position of woman was radically redefined. Well, some people think, ooh, and it's in the context of, a, of uh, uh, someone who's trying to make Islam look very uh, romanticized and very uh, positive in the modern era. So it says, with the advent of Islam, the position of woman was radically redefined. Well, what does that mean, redefined? And I've had Muslims say things like this to me, and I've seen people fall for this kind of comment, this kind of quote, thinking that it shows um, a, 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 pro- a positive development for women. But when you look at that word redefined, what on earth does that mean? And I say, well, yes, I believe the position of woman was radically redefined. But it wasn't redefined in the way that those who are progressive Muslims want it to be redefined. It was redefined in a way that brought down women and subjugated them, that made men think they could control women. So it not only hurt the, man, the woman, it hurt the man. It changed his mind. So he stopped loving her as Christ loved the church. Instead, he suppressed her and controlled her. That's what Islam has done for women. This book says he must die for her. This book says he must control and he can beat her if she disobeys him. Do you see the contrast? That in reality is what Islam has done to women. From love and sacrificial love to control and to, um, to, to dominance. And what about this, um, this particular gentleman, Dr. Jamal Badawi? Uh, if you ever travel through parts of the Western world, and I'd be fascinated to know if this material, I'm sure it is, is in right through the Muslim world as well. But it's, um, there is a booklet that has been put out by Dr. Jamal Badawi. Uh, try read it if you can. It's called the, it's the, about the ennoblement of woman under Islam. 
And um, it's fascinating because he was living in the West and he wrote it for, for the Western mind. And it's all over the internet. And every book table I find across the cities of London, of Britain, every book table, this book is on it, about how uh, the, be the beauty of women in Islam. And basically what he does is he takes what he thinks is the position of woman in Islam, and it's a very romanticized view of it, and then he contrasts it to Mosaic law. And I don't know if someone just didn't bother to tell him that Christians don't live under Mosaic law. And all, and this is the, the, the worst thing he does, he, he finds very unfavorable stories from, from um, Christian history, and there are unfavorable stories, but he takes it from Christian history or maybe an early church father that was a little bit misogynistic. There were a couple that said some interesting things about women and slaves and so on. And he would take examples of that and say, see, this is the Christian woman. This is what the Christian woman had to live under. And what he did is he took the Roman Empire, which in the Muslim mind is Christian. He took the Roman Empire and what the Roman Empire did to woman and he said this is Christian and he equated it with Christianity. He didn't take hardly anything from the New Testament if anything. Um, when he looked at the Old Testament he misunderstood what those scenarios were all about. Sometimes he took um, and, some, and many Muslims do this they'll take a really bad example from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament talks about real events. It talks about human beings who behave in terrible ways, immoral ways. They're murderous, they're adulterous. They're all sorts of things that this Bible tells you about because it's an accurate reporting of history. And it finds these stories and Muslims find these stories and then they try to see, see what your God or your Bible tells you. This is disgusting what your Bible tells you um, about woman and man and so on. What they fail to understand is that this book reports how normal human beings behave. And then it gives, uh, then it, it, it's not saying this is how God wants you to behave. It's saying this is what happened. So it's not God giving an edict that you must do this. It's God showing this is what happened. That's why I need to come. It's because of this, this terrible abuse of women and so on, I need to come. And so Muslims misunderstand that whole concept of how the Bible is written. You see, in Islam, when it talks about, gives these edicts or gives these stories, these are, are stories that they are to emulate. When it gives edicts, they're direct edicts for the Muslims today. They don't have a mosaic law like we do. The mosaic law was for the time of Moses. But what they do is they take something from the Mosaic law and as if it's supposed to be for today. That's just not an accurate way of dealing with the Bible. But for the Quran, they take, when you look at the laws in here, these laws are really for today. That's what's very difficult for the Muslim. So you have um, Muslims romanticizing about their religion, putting Islam on a pedestal, making Islam uh, look attractive. Uh, they, they, we, we talk about how they view Islam and women in Islam with, with rose-tinted glasses. They really are not uh, uh, preaching or telling the world exactly what Islam teaches. So we as Christians, God has given us a remit, one, to introduce the truth in the, found in the Bible to to challenge this book, the Quran. But he's given us also a mind to help our Muslim friends challenge and critique. And all you need to do is find some examples from pre-Islamic material. There isn't much there, but find some examples or just do a comparison between Khadija and Aisha. 
That's the easiest comparison. You don't have to be a historian to do that. You just take Khadija, you take Aisha, or maybe one of the other wives, Safia, for example. Take Safia, she's a good one. Do a comparison. Khadija represents the free pre-Islamic woman. Um, uh, ha uh, Hafsa or, or Safia or Juraira, she represents the post-Islamic woman, the kind of thing that um, Islam does to a woman. Then take it one step further. Do not ever leave a Muslim just on the critique. Never criticize their religion, and we do need to cr critique their religion. Um, critique it and then give them the solution. Take it another step forward and say, what did Jesus do with woman? How does this book talk about woman? How does this value woman? Martha and Mary are, are a wonderful example of that. And in a few um, sessions on, we are going to look at uh, some wonderful stories we can use in the Old Testament to help us uh, communicate the beauty of this book um, as a, a comparison and alternative to this book when it comes to woman in Islam.